Hey everybody, welcome to It's Fucking Ward, a Doof Media podcast series where we discuss Ward while Bo's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman and this is my co-host Scott Daly. Scott, take over because uh, my teeth are falling out and uh, I'm late for the final exam for the class that I forgot about. All right, it's fucking me. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of climactic emotions if you know what I mean, breaking cycles and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, the end is here at last as the epilogue officially begins. We're covering chapters 20.11 and 20.e1. Victoria spends some time in her dream hassling her dead boyfriend and flirting with her dead girlfriend, but then is woken up by the humans, her plan having worked. Vicky abandons the cape life in favor of getting a coffee with her not-dead girlfriend, Lisa. Then, it's the first epilogue chapter as we see inside Chevalier's dream. Chevy is terrified of the cycle continuing, but with the help of Victoria and some eggs, finally manages to break it. Matt, what did you think of these two chapters? Well, I have to say, uh, this is just an incredibly satisfying ending so far. Mm-hmm. I mean, we get the last proper ending, you know, the last proper chapter of the book, and then we're moving into epilogues, which is going to be a, a prolonged ending, which wraps everything up for us and hopefully gives us some different angles on what what all of this means and leaves us with the feeling of closure and so far I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, this is an interesting episode to be in and I think all of our episodes from here till the end of the show are going to be interesting because you know the the final conflict is resolved, the conceit of the book has revealed itself. We kind of talked about that last week what we, we thought the conclusions and the, and the, the final settled themes of the story were. And this is really just kind of wrapping things up, um, making some last final moves for Victoria to, to officially declare and, and make it clear that how, how changed she is and how the events of this book have changed her. Um, it's just really satisfying. There's not a lot, there's not a lot of analytical stuff to say i think somehow we filled 18 pages worth so uh we're gonna say it but it just felt different prepping for this one than it has the others well it's definitely like there's no there's no more plot so it's all it's all moments and and points of of information which we then just have to say like okay well this is this is something to talk about but but it doesn't have implications beyond this moment like okay this is the end so this is this is this. So it, it, it was difficult to prepare. It's just like a list of the things that happened. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, and I don't know. I, I think it'll be fine. I think it'll be a fun conversation, um, but it yeah. is very different than usual. It, it, I think it's going to be a fun conversation because I think this is going to be an emotional conversation for us because this is just a satisfying couple of chapters. It just they just make you feel good. For sure. Um, and the word has not always delivered making you feel good, you know? <laughs> Yes, I, I I admit I always hoped that it would end with a with a happier tone. Um, not that it's yeah. over yet, but it definitely uh, it, it seems to be going in a in a more yes we succeeded direction. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. 
All right, quick announcement before we get into things. Uh, Scott, the end is coming. Yeah, I just we had we had been getting some questions the last couple of weeks about what are we going to do for the end of the show? Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, we have some of our good friends over at Deep Impact that have set the standard for ending of shows um, way, way high, like super, super high. Very high um, bar. So we're starting to talk about what our final episode plans are going to be. We don't have anything officially planned yet. Basically, what we know right now is the, there will be an episode that covers the last chapters, and then there will be a episode after that that'll probably be a mailbag and also have us just like talking generally about our experience with the book as a whole instead of diving down into the specific chapters or the specific arcs. Um, that's all we have planned right now. Um, we were going to do more than that, but then we will announce that as we go. But that's just generally what we have planned. So if you um, if you are wanting to ask us questions, don't submit them yet. It's too early, but start thinking about what kind of questions you would want for like a final ward mailbag. Um, and and that's that's all we got planned that we can talk about right now. But uh, yeah, well, definitely going to be some fun stuff coming up. I think we have some some things we're thinking about doing, but because we didn't have like six months in advance knowing when the end was going to be like Ruben and Elliot did. And because we're not as crazy and wonderful as they are, we're not going to do anything like a 24 hour live stream no, or anything like that. Nothing approaching um, that. No, we, we do want to have some fun stuff and celebrate the end of this book. Um, but we'll be talking more about that over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's get into chapter 20.11, the final chapter of the book proper. This, this is it. So we begin with Victoria trying and failing to read her phone, a sure sign that she's dreaming, of course. She interprets the message as Dean inviting her over. So she flies through the dream landscape of Brockton Bay, flying past Bank and it's fucking meat and probably fuckly bobs. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't say it's there, but come on. Yeah, it's, it's there. It's got to be. I, I, I really love this. Um, I mean, there is something fitting here that this final chapter of the book begins exactly where the book started, right? The, the book opened with Victoria getting a text message from someone. Um, the last chapter of the book begins with Victoria getting a text message from someone. Mm -hmm. um, it was her parents at first or her mother, at least now it's Dean. And finally we get our Dean moment that we, I think we've been, we've been waiting for her to deal with the Dean stuff for so many months, Matt. Sure. Years. Some would say years. Um, yeah. And we're finally here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the, the Dean, the Dean through line has been, this crucial thing to her character has been woven into all of the things that are going on with her. Yeah. And this is just exactly the closure that I think we needed for this. Totally. This, totally. this interaction. I do love the touches that you touched on that, that it's making clear it's a dream, the, the phone messing up the bank and it's fucking meat being the best thing ever. Um, I, I also love this little touch here where it says, even though it had been afternoon when I left the Pelham's lawn, it was evening when I arrived at the penthouse. So that's cool because it shows the dreamy nebulousness of it. But also we get this understanding here very early that Victoria has been dreaming for a while and seeing other stuff. She's been doing other things. We're only getting to see a very small part of what Victoria's dream was. Perhaps you could argue because we're seeing it the most important parts. Sure. Um, and it's it's also kind of unclear at first whether Victoria is aware that she's dreaming or not. She seems to point out 
the weirdness going around her, but there's no line specifically in this opening that says, oh, it's because it's a dream. Uh, this will, of course, be answered later. But I, but I love that we start off here kind of with Victoria ahead of us. She understands the dream world now before she has this confrontation with Dean. She understands it and we don't quite get it yet. And so she's ahead of us here. Yeah, it actually reminds me a bit of of the very few experiences I've had with lucid dreaming where you you can kind of go in and out of awareness that you're dreaming like like even the awareness that you're dreaming can slip into the frame of like you're dreaming about being aware that you're dreaming but you're no longer aware yeah. that you're dreaming um and so it just it, it gives you this nice kind of liminal feeling of of like well she's aware she's dreaming but she's not really like awake awake um at least that's how i interpreted this yeah i i, I think i think there's an argument to that for sure because i mean there are especially the temptation like we'll talk about this dean whole conversation in a bit but like it starts off very lovey-dovey and then like she kind of almost slips into that multiple times as she's trying to like maybe the lucid part of her is trying to bring up the thing she needs to talk about but the uh-huh. the sleeping part of her really just wants to cuddle with her boyfriend right um right yeah i like that so dean flies up uh, sorry victoria flies up to dean's apartment uh, to try to spook him um, and they just have the sweetest possible interaction in the universe. There's, there's kind of samples like, um, she tries to sneak up on him, but, he, but it doesn't work. He says, I, I can sense you, even if it's dampened, there was moisture in my eyes. What if I love you really, really hard? Will it get through the dampening? You could try. And, you know, there's, there's really not a lot of this kind of thing in the story, you know, mm-hmm. for the obvious reason that this has been a story about this woman who lost this guy she loved, who, who she still loves. Um, who she's still grieving even at this point years later. So the story is providing Victoria her closure. That That's what this is. That's that's why we've been missing it. And it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. This is this is kind of the moment or one one of the moments for Victoria. Losing Dean is this life defining thing for her. And, and I think it is the one thing that she hasn't really come to terms with yet. We talked a lot about Victoria putting Dean up on this pedestal. And a lot of the book has been, I think, Victoria learning information that takes little chunks out of that pedestal. But she hasn't truly taken him off of it. Not yet. Um, and, and I think you're absolutely right. This is time for some some closure at last. Yeah. Uh, so it gradually becomes clear that Victoria does know that she's dreaming, at least as as we talked about in, in fits and starts. Um, but, you know, the fact that she's dreaming, like it doesn't mean that this isn't also real in a sense, because this isn't just a dream of Gallant. This is a shard copy of, of Gallant. Uh, if, if this book has accomplished anything, it's gotten us used to the idea that person is a pretty wobbly concept. Yeah. Um, this person is as much Dean as Wynn is the same person as Kid Wynn or Ashley is the same person as Ashley Stilson, Stillens, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Dean, or it, or it was Dean. <laughs> it's the Dean that's a shard captor. Technically a facsimile, but but calling him Dean still feels right here. You know, like it, yeah. it's. It, I really agree with that. That that this, look, we had that whole discussion question about what is a person. Um, this book has played fast and loose with these ideas and allowed you to really explore them. And I think that allows us to get to a place where I'm comfortable just saying this is Dean enough of a version of Dean to where Victoria can have this conversation with this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think in, in a minute we might get into the idea of whether, whether or not Dean is aware that he is dead and that this is a dream um, yeah. And yeah. I think that's actually somewhat ambiguous. Let, let, let's hold off on, on talking about that for a second, though. Sure, sure. 
I, I do do love in this moment how Victoria goes over what she's been what what the dream has been for her. This is where it becomes very clear that not only does she know she's dreaming, but she's like we said, been doing it for a while. We've only seen a portion, but she's fought two Endbringers, dealt with the Slaughterhouse Nine, shopping trip with a girl I met at the hospital, an ex fallen, a dude that's dating Vista who might have you beat for good looking looking good in armor, and a very troubled little girl who should not have been here. Then, you know, ran into the undersiders and Skitter force fed me spiders and centipedes at the bank. Um, <laughs> yeah, I you, love this. You know, what's what's cool about this that I didn't um, I didn't process it at the time. I didn't even process it when I reread it. But she names I think she names everyone except um, um, Ashley and Tristan, basically. And yeah. that's because Tristan is specifically said to be like unreachable. And Ashley, she sees in a minute here. I think I think yeah, he she had hasn't the, seen him yet. There's like this impression that Ashley has more control, and so she's not going to get sucked into somebody else's dream. You know, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just that 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 occurred to me. I was like, because uh, I was wondering why aren't Ashley and Tristan here, and then I realized like, well, there's kind of an explanation for that actually. Yeah. I, I, so here's the part about this that is so interesting to me. Um, she so she names Feta, Rain, Byron, and Kenzie, right? She she ran into all of them in the dream and they went on a shopping trip or they were pulled into a dream that was reminiscent of the time they went for a shopping trip. It's not exactly clear and it doesn't matter, right? Like that's not exactly important. But here's what's great about this, and I think what starts to really help establish this idea that Dean is this stagnant entity, this unchanging thing that, that, that is one of the things that death represents the absence of change. Um, Victoria doesn't refer to any of these people by name, right? Like she describes them, a, a girl in the hospital, an ex fallen, a dude that's dating Vista and a very troubled little girl. Like these are our main characters that she doesn't name any of them because those names mean nothing to a 17 year old frozen in time Dean, because this Dean doesn't actually know Victoria, uh-huh. not not who she is today, not the person she is now, not the things that she's been through, not the person that she's become. He knows the 16 year old version of Victoria, and that's all he'll ever know. So like the most important people in Victoria's life, her found family in, in this group that was breakthrough are people that she can't even name to him because it's not, it means nothing to him. I like that. And I think that's so powerful. Yeah. The only person she names is Vista who he does mm-hmm. know, but yeah, but Vista is like 11 to him. Right. So yeah. the idea that there's some, some armored guy dating her is, is you know, it should be jarring to him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that that's, that's where I want to segue into this idea that Dean is like semi aware that this isn't really right. Like there's this recurring beat where repeatedly he remarks that he's 17 mm-hmm. in like an apologetic fashion um, and, you know, Victoria is aware that she's dreaming mostly. I think, I think he's partly aware that he's this stagnant frozen copy. Uh, he'll say some things like 2011 is present tense, but then he sort of implicitly acknowledges at other points that that's not really the case. Um, yeah. 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 I, I really love that. And I think you're right that he's not clear about what it, who he is and what's going on. And I think that's part of that is the confusion. Like he, he looks and he sees a Victoria that looks like the 16-year-old girl that he dated. Um, because what Victoria does say in this moment is that that's that's when in, in this dream, she is the 16-year-old version of herself. Um, but there's something different about her, right? Like, yeah. and, and I think he can tell that there's something different about her and he doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. Like he knows something's different. He knows she's changed. 
but he doesn't know what to do with that because he can't because he's like just like she could only see him as the teenage version of himself, but eventually gets over that. He can literally only see her as a 16 year old version of herself. That's it. And a lot of this confusion and a lot of, I think the, the, the recognition of his childishness is seeing a person that he kind of doesn't recognize in her. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some moments in here where it seems like it seems like it's possible that he's aware that, He's he's dead and he's sort of almost thinking like maybe maybe now Victoria's dead and she's going to come hang out with me in, in yeah, Deadland. Yeah. And that's kind of what he wants in, in a sense. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't hope she's dead, but he doesn't want her to leave, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah. He, I, I think you're right. I mean, like imagine him just hanging out. I know this is probably not exactly how it happened, but imagine him just hanging out in this apartment for like <laughs> like five years, six years. I'm not sure how long it yeah. is actually. Um, and then she shows up and it's like, Oh, finally, yeah. finally. Like I, I think, uh, it's so, it's so great. Yeah. Like, yeah. So they go inside and, and they lie down on the couch together. Um, ghost Dean is horny. Um, <laughs> but Victoria has like four years of emotional processing and grief to unload on him. So, yeah. And can we talk about how incredible that is? Yeah. Like this is, this is Dean in the flesh sort of yeah um i they they start off like cute and adorable and lovey they hug each other they tell each other how much they love each other they touch they get close but she can't just do that she can't just hide in that and not do anything because she's learned things about him and she has to face them and i i love that like you there's like you can see an earlier version of victoria that just hides in this dream in this happiness and doesn't ever push any kind of issues with him. Yeah. Um, that just, this is, this is what she wanted and she's got it now and I'm just going to hide in it forever. Yeah. But she doesn't. Sure. Well, the, the, the earliest version of her, this was purely a kind of escape for her. Right. Actually, it, it, it was a kind of coping mechanism even that she would retreat into these wonderful feelings about the one person who never betrayed her, the one person who was always there for her, mm-hmm. ba- basically a perfect guy, this perfect guy that she had. And yeah. if anything, the fact that he's dead is like a bonus because he's unchangingly perfect. He he can't let her down because he can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as the story went on, she learned more stuff. She learned that he was cauldron. She learned that he probably knew about the Amy situation. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, just she changes. She's she's kind of able to move past him in small ways, like with Annalise. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so, yeah, this is now that now this is not going to be what it would have been at, start, at the start of the story. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's so wonderful. So first she asks him about the Amy situation and, and he explains that, yeah, he did know what was up with her, but he figured that there would be time to approach the issue in a more gentle way. And. Then she asks why he didn't tell her that he was Cauldron, and he has a you know pretty good excuse for that as well, since he would have been killed. Uh, <laughs> and, but but like he he's hurt that she's asking these questions. He doesn't really understand. He doesn't really it does it. It's not it's not fun for him, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like we were talking about earlier, I think this is a seventeen year old kid's version of heaven, or uh-huh. at least that's what he would think. Like eternity with his hottest shit girlfriend, Netflix and chilling forever, uh-huh. you know, but that's just not what Victoria is or, or what she wants anymore. And, and so that's really off putting to him. Like heaven, your girlfriend's not supposed to confront you about your past <laughs> failings or yeah. talk about how, 
talk about trust or walls coming down. This isn't how heaven oh, works. What's minute. going on here? Wait a minute. Yeah. This is hell. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Um, um, yeah. And, and I love what he says here. I'm really thinking about us and the future. If I give the right answers, admit to my faults, do you leave and never come back? Like he's thinking about their future together where Victoria knows that there is none uh-huh. that like even even if the worst happens and they don't wake up from this dream and she does indeed die. I don't think her future would still be just chill with Dean in this apartment for eternity and shard heaven or whatever. I, I think that's crucial to point out because she leaves him not knowing whether she's going to wake up or not. She, she, right. she basically makes her decision. She could, she could stay with him. They could find closeness and comfort together, but she, she just leaves. Like she doesn't yeah. even have a plan. She's not going anywhere. She's just like, I can't, this, this isn't going to work for me as, as a, as an anything. Um, so she just gets her, her answers and she leaves. Mm Um, yeah, I mean, she, she realizes that he hasn't grown up with her. She sees the, the immaturity in him and she just kisses him on the forehead and she walks out. Yeah. I I love, I love this moment. Not just that she sees the immaturity, but she sees the youth and like, she sees how young he is like she, like his skin his smell like he just come like she compares him to Annalise in this moment right because Annalise is an adult he's mm-hmm. he's a man um and this 17 you're on the cusp of adulthood but he's still he's still a 17 year old kid and and he still looks and smells and and like and is a kid in every way. And, and I love that moment where she just looks at him and sees it mm-hmm. for the first time. And, and this, this quote here, you're perfect because you're in the past unchanging. I can keep the best memories and gloss over the worst, but you're a teenager and you'll always be a teenager. Um, and she's not anymore. And yeah. that's such a powerful, like, I think like, I think everyone in the world has known this to be true except for Victoria throughout this book. Like, uh-huh. I think like anyone would have told Victoria this, that like, look, like your image of him is perfect because it cannot be corrupted by anything. Yeah. Um, and, and you need to realize that. And this is her finally, finally realizing it. And what I love about this is that like, she doesn't really get satisfactory answers from him on, st- on Amy and on Cauldron. Right. Like he's just his answers are just kind of like, sorry, yeah, well, I'm a kid. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I feel like they're they're fine. Like like uh, the, the, the answers are both just like, yeah, I mean, sh- shit happens kind of like 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 he didn't realize that the Amy situation was going to ruin Victoria's life. Um, and the cauldron thing, he, he's just like, yeah, you know, I felt bad about it. Sorry. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, um, she's on the balcony and she encounters Swan Song looking stylish as ever. Uh, and Swan Song is really, really disappointed that she didn't get to watch Dean and Vicky fuck. <laughs> uh, this is, it's, it's so wonderful. Uh-huh. It's just, it's so fitting that she transitions from her former love interest to her present love interest. Uh-huh. And then of course the book wraps up with her, her future love interest. It's really just, just perfect. It is beautiful. Um, <laughs> I'm joking, obviously. Uh, but, but can we talk about Swanson's look in the, the dream world yes. a bit here? Because she has black makeup smeared around her eyes, almost like a blindfold. Her white hair was short with bits of black. Like she'd wiped her fingers clear of the makeup in it. Um, so she has the short white hair with flecks of black in it. I think we've talked a little bit about how Dean, is both is and isn't 
Dean, but Swansong is different, right? Like she has more command over this world than just about anyone else. Um, and she has given herself a, a look here. Um, and it is a look that's kind of a combination of the black and white in ways that would be very, very satisfying to, to Swansong. Yes, absolutely. It, it, this seems like a sort of fully matured and realized form of, of Swansong that she has achieved by kind of fully committing to the final choice that she made in life. And it's basically, you know, ascending, um, the, the, like you said, this is, uh, this is just the, the, the final form of her and she gets to live in this world and kind of have her, her, her degree of mastery over it. And, you know, it, it's not a terrible ending for her actually, I, I would say. Um, yeah, no, no. I mean, it, it's interesting because I think there are parts of it and we'll get to this in a bit, but I think there are parts of it in which, uh, Victoria sees some of it as, a bad ending, but every time she kind of addresses that, not specifically, but to like roundabout way, Ashley kind of shoots it down and it's like, no, I'm uh-huh. fine with this. Yeah. As long, I think, I think maybe what's positive about like everything, everything that's hard for her about living in the dream world is just a way in which her life is not static, which is good for her. Like it's not mm-hmm. just, she's not just rotating between scenes. There's actually apparently some, degree of, of dynamism to her existence here, like specifically talking about the, the other swan songs that are hunting her. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, we got to talk about those. Is this the time where we talk about those? Uh, sure. We can talk about that now. I think it might come up again later, but um, no, let's just wait till we get to okay, it. I right. just love it. I okay. just love it. Um, um yeah. I, I love, I love how much Ashley talks about fucking though. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just, it's just so delightful. And it reminds me of how much I've missed this character. Like, uh, this idea that Victoria's attenuation to emotions means that in this dream world, she, she got really good fucking just really good. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's great. So they talk about Swan Song's brief appearance uh, in taking over damsel's body. And Ashley says that she probably won't do that, do, do that specific thing again. Um, since she's already busy dealing with the shades of the other damsels who lurk in reflections around her constantly, uh, mm. which is just so metaphorical that I'm salivating. <laughs> oh my god it's so good it's so fucking good like i i can't i i can't i can't handle how good like so first of all we get the confirmation that you were correct last week matt that her coming forward was basically a result of damsel attempting to kill kenzie so that's what your interpretation was and and that was spot on that's uh, damsel or uh, swan song confirms that this week um and then I love I love how she says she's not going to do it anymore. Right. Like this is maybe the best the best sentence in the book. (laughs) Yeah. Will you? I think I'd rather not. Ashley said I wouldn't say I'm content, but I've always been a restless creature, a bird with twisted wings of annihilation. That is so fucking (laughs) Ashley. It's so good. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's it's Um, great. And and like Victoria's kind of smiles at it. It's so good. Yeah. And then and then as you saying the 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 shades of the other damsels around her is, is so wonderful. Like the dream dreams are, are a place where metaphor can literally become reality within the scope of the story. Right. Yeah. And, and Swan song being constantly hounded by the shades of her past, but having the utmost confidence that she can deal with them because quote, I've had too many new experiences. They can't relate to or reach now. Like this is, this is her past and past versions of herself hounding her and they're just completely powerless against her. They can't do anything. They, they can't be effective against her because she's experienced too much. She's learned too much. She's grown too much. Yeah. 
and they're always going to be there. Like th- that is such a perfect encapsulation of everything, right? Like those things that happen to you, those versions of yourself are always going to be there, but eventually they get to a place where they're just reflections on glass that can't do anything sure. to you. Yeah. I mean, you, you see things in your life, you maybe even look in the mirror and see something in yourself that you recognize as being an old form of you that you no longer endorse and, and maybe it stings for a second and then you just move on with your day. That's, that's growing up, you know, and that's, that's what she's, that's what she's talking about here metaphorically, of course. So Mm -hmm. uh, Victoria notes that she seems to have left like a weird shadow on the ground which I think is supposed to be an example of this data corruption that she's been spreading, the pollution um, that she's been moving around the shard database throughout the dream. Yeah, it's like the smudgy shadow. So we got all this like this data piling up mm-hmm. um, that shows that that it's working. Things yeah. are being corrupted. Um, and, and I love we learn here that Victoria was like attempting to try to pollute the more ugly parts of the data. And I don't, she never really explains how that mechanically works. You know, I, yeah. I, maybe, maybe specifically like she was trying to dream about certain bad things. Or, or maybe she has some control over when, when she messes things up. And this is just like yeah. an example where she, I don't know, stood in one spot for too long and, and leaked out some of her pollution. I, I, I really have no idea. It, it didn't bother me, honestly. Like I just figured, um, I just figured that if you're going to damage the shards data, then, then yeah, focusing on like Endbringer fights would be a great way to, to ruin some of their best data actually, because that's like the whole point of the Endbringer fights is to generate conflict. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's nice that it both, um, <laughs> it both gets rid of all the shitty dreams. So I think she specifically says, so the people that are stuck here don't have to like relive all the awful experiences, but also just so happens to get rid of all the data that they care about the most. Yeah. It's, it's really convenient. Right. Isn't it kind of cool on a level that like they, they were harvesting the conflict by, by creating these inbringer fights where all these people were killed. And now the humans have, have robbed them of the, the, you know, the learning that the value that they obtained, from all those horrible things they did. So now it was just, it was just killing for no reason, really. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Huh. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Yeah. yeah. So the pair talk about how the other members of breakthrough are doing. Uh, Kenzie is apparently, uh, either hanging out with grew or something, um, at reigns with love lost and Colt. Sveta is hard to reach. Tristan is unreachable due to the damage being done. Yeah, and I love, Matt, this conversation regarding Kenzie, and I, I want to talk about this like forever <laughs> because Victoria basically just vents. She's like, whatever I do, if I include her, if I leave her behind, it feels like I'm damning. Uh, it feels like a damning wrong choice. If she was the one thing I focused on, I think I'd still get it wrong, but she's not. And the end result feels like the worst of both worlds. I talked to her. She found someone on her wavelength, the darkness manipulator. Yeah, let them meet. She's strong. She's determined. She'll find her way. But I worry, as do I, my friend. Um, it's. I think it's a perfect way. Like, I think we're going to get more Kenzie. I think there's going to be a Kenzie wrap up by the end of this book, most likely. But I, I, I like this as a way to, like, leave the parents of Kenzie because, uh-huh. like, you're always going to worry. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're, like, that's the thing is, like, we've we've made a joke about how this 99% of this book is just us being concerned about Kenzie. And that like to, to take the, the parent metaphor 
full circle, that is what being a parent is sometimes, right? Like you're always worried about your kid. You're always worried that if she's doing the right, if you're doing the right thing, if she's doing the right, if she's going the right way, you're always worried about that. You just have to, you just have to trust, find people that she works well with. She's found grew, grew had an effect on her, allow them to see each other, allow them to hang out. Um, and hopefully that will help her find her way. And I like, like Ashley, Ashley's kind of saying goodbye here in a way. Yeah. Um, and, and I like how she's saying like, I, I, I'm, I'm worried about her too. And I might see her again and I might see you again, but I think she'll be okay. Yeah. Well, I, I love the, the juxtaposition of, you know, she's strong, she's determined, she'll find her way, but I worry mm-hmm. as do I, my friend. And, and that's, I think that's kind of the, the healthy attitude of a parent or of a, a mentor or whatever is like, yeah, I have faith. She is strong. She, she is, she, I have faith that she'll find her way. I still worry, obviously, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But like, like I, I don't pretend to have some kind of fanatical certainty that Kenzie will be fine, but sure. But, sure. but I have faith because I, I, I love her and I believe in her. And I think that's a beautiful sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to that concept of trust, right? Like you have to be able to extend trust to people sometimes. Um, yeah. You, even, even when they haven't, they haven't, earned it or they've they've screwed with it in the past eventually you have to because you will never like like she said even if she was the one thing you focused on it might not be enough so at some point you're gonna have to trust that she'll she'll be able to find her way yeah um yeah i love it i love it yep so in the end matt we don't get to see tristan and when i thought about this dream world stuff i was like oh i bet we're gonna get to see tristan and at least in this version of it we didn't um and and I don't like it doesn't seem like Byron would have been able to either. Right. From what Ashley says about him being disconnected from and, and too far away, Byron probably didn't get that closure either. How yeah. do you feel about that? I think th- I, th- I agree with your interpretation. I wonder if um, I, d- I do wonder if we might have some kind of interlude content with Tristan, but I don't think we will. If I had to predict, I would say no. I would say that that storytelling you know thematic wise his death was supposed to be a death Mm -hmm. like like this this afterlife it has all kinds of complicated metaphorical meanings to it but when you have a character where their their death was meant to just be a kind of um i don't know I, i i don't want to say tristan's death was a failure but if you compare it, for example, to what Ashley's death symbolized, Ashley's death symbolized acceptance. Tristan's death symbolized a failure of acceptance. Just, you know, I, I think, I think that's, I think that is what that is. And so, mm-hmm. and so Tristan being un- unreachable here, I think works with this idea that he's not, he, he, he doesn't belong in this, in this part of, of the, of the, of the story, I think. Yeah, I get what you mean. Um, yeah. I, I like that. And I generally agree with that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do. I do. Like part of me still wanted to see a final moment with him and, and we might still get one. You don't know. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I was I think that I think you're right. You're right in that. I think that framing is correct that that um, Tristan died because he couldn't he couldn't accept the things that he had done yeah um, byron was able to accept them before he was actually yeah um and and yeah i mean i i think 
getting getting like a beautiful scene of closure might cheapen that a little bit. That's not the right word, but I, I contradict right. that maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think again, I think we probably won't get a, a Tristan uh, chapter, but who knows? We'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I do love this moment. That this is the moment we talked about last week that I was waiting for, Matt. The moment where Victoria realizes that the humans didn't let them down, that the tr- the trust she put in them was rewarded. The moment that that they're bringing them out, and it's it's a small moment, right? But it's so powerful. I drew in a breath. I felt dizzy when I realized what she was saying. Yeah. Um, Ashley says people, very powerful people, are being pulled out, and she's basically like, "Oh my God, that's what that means," and she's just. Like she can't even say anything. Yeah. Like I, I, I was, I was waiting out. Like I was kind of in the back of my head, like, oh my God, this is going to be such a big moment. And she's going to utter some, like some, some th- like thesis defining statement of the whole story at the, upon that realization. No, no, that's, that's not really like her. And I don't think that's what human beings do. Um, just the feel, the overwhelming feeling of dizziness when you realize that that is happening. Yeah. Um, is it's wonderful. I mean, clearly it's a huge moment for her because from this moment on, she's like a different person. Like, like she's, as she'll say later, she's out. That that was it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I I, I also, here's Ashley's goodbye. I think this is worth talking about, right? Because Ashley says, I suppose I'll see you again one day. Perhaps my contrarian sister will cede all ground and I'll give you a call after. Perhaps she'll find a middle ground and accept some parts of me. Or maybe you'll die 60 years from now and you'll be recorded in the annals of this place. It's not Valhalla. It's not hell either. Not quite. It's a last test, a question mark drawn out over hundreds or thousands of years. Um, I, I think that's beautiful. Like for other people, that might sound terrible. Like, like there is a part of me that thinks the idea of having your consciousness stuck in this dream world for hundreds of thousands, hundreds or thousands of years is nightmarish, but that's not who Swansong is. Um, yeah. And she sees this as a test. Like this is here. Here's the person I became and I will, and, and this life living here, I say life in quotes, um, will just be my test. This, have I earned this? And will I continue to earn this every day by, staying true to the person I want to be and not, not those shadows, um, chasing behind me. And, and I love that moment where we look inside one of the windows and we see a headless corpse there. Yeah. Some, is, was that supposed to be her dad? Um, that's kind of what I, well, I guessed, but I kind of guessed it was, but it, I didn't, th- I didn't feel like it matched perfectly, but it might've been, no. it, it didn't match perfectly, but maybe that's just cause I don't think he was sitting in a chair and in this image, right. he was like sitting in a chair. I, it didn't match perfectly, but I also like the idea of in the dream, like this original death is like placed on a pedestal on a throne of sorts. Yeah. Um, it could and, v- and she, she just like rolls her eyes at it and just, just walks on. Yeah. I mean, it could like, what's interesting is we don't really know what she got up to when she was, um, you know, five minutes old when, when, when she was working for Bonesaw directly, uh, running around being part of the slaughterhouse nine thousand. Um, mm-hmm. so maybe she killed people then. I'm not actually sure. Yeah. Um, no, I'm pretty sure. Uh, it, I'm pretty sure it's not like just a random person. Yeah. Um, didn't, it didn't feel like a random person. I, I agree yeah. with that. Oh, it's Jay. It's Jay. Yeah. But okay. Jay, was she blew Jay's head off, but she blew sure. his, but she blew his arm off first and that guy had an arm. So I was, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know. 
It's de- I think and that works. I think that works really well because that was one she felt very, very bad about. And she's almost indifferent to being shown it now. She just doesn't yeah. care anymore. Yeah, that's true. Not because not because it's, she does, has regrets it, but because it's like she sees it as a test, as like a trying to drag her back down type of thing. Uh-huh. And she won't accept that. It is it is cool to see this because like I'm remembering Snag's last moments where I, I, I regrettably I forget the, the exact language, but it was like then dreams of a new kind came and, and he realized that he would never be free of them or something. And it's like this, a hor- it was just wonderful, horrible moment of like, yep, you're, you're being sucked into this afterlife shard hell, but Ashley just has a different attitude about it. And she's, she, she fights for, for, for control here. And she actually kind of makes it hers. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I love it. Um, and I also love Matt how this conversation ends before she before Victoria wakes up because Victoria almost like falls into old patterns again um, here where she's like like she realized she's waking up and she's like oh shit I gotta solve problems um um what was what was going on there what was what was uh the, what were the Titans digging what was what was going on with that and Ashley's like I don't I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, I can't help you. I, I don't know what that is. Um, it's almost like she's falling into old habits where like, here's here's more problems that have to solve more things we have to do. Go, go, go. And then Ashley's just like, hey, be happy. I do believe we won. Like and it's just this very simple, wonderful statement. Um, it's just like, hey, just take take a breath and enjoy this thing before you dive into the next thing. And that ends up being uh, the big, big like motif of the Chevalier chapter. So I really liked it seeing it here yeah yeah it's great uh so victoria is awakened feeling uh, pretty sluggish by by this woman who we never get her name uh, we don't know who she is but uh, of, of course vicky re- ignores the recommendation to rest for 20 minutes before standing um, the woman seems a little annoyed that victoria is jetting off immediately but vicky gives her uh her hood ornament as a consolation uh, and then she lets the rest of the bloody destroyed costume drop into the crack in the earth letting go of Antares. And she also tells Fragile One, hey, uh, there's not going to be as much power use going forward. So I hope you're OK with that. Yeah, I, I, I love this so much. Um, the giving away and then ultimately throwing away of the costume is so perfect, especially because it's done into the cracks like it's into Shard World, right? Like it's like have your cape stuff back, like yeah. have have your Antares like this is not me anymore. Um, like. I wouldn't be giving them any more of me. Not like I had, like she has changed and she's not going to be the same person. And, and Terry's this, this shining bright star in the sky is not how she's going to run her life anymore. Uh-huh. Um, I love it. And yeah, Vic- Victoria, as she's talking to fragile one, like tests her out. Right. And the, the force field extends no further than her clothes and makes no movements that are out of his, con- out of her control. Um, and we'll see in the next chapter that Chevalier sees, her shadow as being perfectly aligned. So like that's pretty good confirmation that like her shard isn't going to fight her on these decisions. Yeah. That's how Um, I interpret it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and maybe we're seeing this as kind of like the goal of, of symbiosis between the two species, um, like where they can coexist without like, cause every, every, like she could maybe just never use her power again and her shard maybe would be okay with it in this situation, which is not how it goes for anyone else. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think I like, like 
I'm not clear. I'm not entirely clear on whether she leaves the force field on or not. But I think the point is that that either way, I think it's fine either way. Like I think she, she my my headcanon is that she leaves her force field on here. And now her force field is the same as it was before all of her terrible traumas. It, it, it's just it's just a skin tight force field that keeps her safe. Um, she's clearly using her flight here. Um, so sure. so so obviously, I, I think I, I, like I don't even interpret this as like oh yeah I'm not going to use my powers anymore. I think it's just I'm not going to use my powers for fighting anymore. Sure, um, sure. Yeah, I mean she definitely leaves it on as she's flying through the air. So yeah. I I don't I don't know like if that means she, she's just going to leave it on forever and it's probably never going to pop because she's never going to put herself in violent situations where she can get hit like that. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I agree with you that I do not see Victoria just like not ever using her powers anymore. Um, yeah. Like it'd be very hard to tell me that I could fly and then be like, nah, yeah, you like, gotta, just, be, you gotta just drive. because I just because I don't want to fight crime anymore. It doesn't mean I don't want to go fucking flying through the city. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah. I think I think that's um, I mean, I'm going to double down on that because at the start of the story, she wasn't using her powers. And that was because they reminded her of all these terrible things. Right. And I think now like she wasn't even flying between places when she could have. She was she was walking and, and you know, stuff like that. So now she's she's going to use her powers for convenience, but she's not going to fight. I think that's. Yeah. I mean, what what about the idea of using your powers for good? And I don't yeah. mean in like being a hero kind of way. I mean, in non-conflict kind of ways, you yeah. know, like like the, the there's so many incredible powers. And just because of the shard shit, they always resorted to just being used to fight each other and to do damage and to destroy things. Yeah. What if there's a way to use these incredible gifts, um, in, in non conflict oriented ways. And, and, right. and maybe that's what I'm not, I won't be giving them any more of me. Not like I had, like, I'm still going to use these things. I'm still going to use these gifts, but I'm not going to use them the way in which they wanted me to. I mean, this is a fascinating idea because like the, the, they've won maybe not just against Fortuna, but against the shards and the shards expectation that like you're going to fight and you're going to, you're going to give us all this conflict. Like maybe the shard, maybe the conflict drive itself will be diminished or gone now Mm -hmm. uh, for everyone. And, you know, maybe, maybe triggers will no longer, if if triggers continue to happen, maybe they won't seek out the most vulnerable and the most likely to use the powers. Maybe they will, uh, operate by some other means. I mean, it's it's fun to think about. I don't. All of this is super conjectury and sort of based on this idea of where we think uh, the themes point. But I, I do like sure. to imagine that this might be like the the positive future. Yeah, me too. Me too. Cool. And I think I think Victoria's first flight after the dream reflects kind of this conversation because it, she talks specifically about how this reminds her of the first time she ever flew. Um, and it be, and because she's flying through the city with endless possibilities of he- ahead of her. And that's what they have now. They have all these new possibilities and, and she finds it terrifying because yeah, like, like a, a, an entire world of possibility where you'd have no idea what's going to happen can be really fucking scary because you have no idea what's going to happen. But yeah. I think it's hopeful at the same time too. Like there's, there's so many different things right. that they could do. Well, I think it's also, I think even here she's already decided that she's not going to be a, a superhero anymore. Right. So, so, so that's, that's part of what she means with the possibilities is like, well, it, it's going to be different and it's going to be scary and it's going to be, it's going to be di- difficult. So, yeah. Yeah. 
So Victoria flies to the cauldron base and she locates the room where all the undersider adjacent folks are in stasis. <laughs> um, and at this point, I want to just point out kind of from here going forward, the general lack of masks and the lack of costumes, uh, which I think just becomes really important as we go on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. And, and we'll circle back around to this in the next chapter when it becomes like crazy, like that just everyone is in a room together and everyone's referred to by first names almost. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I think this is representative of a, a shift in the status quo as far as capes are concerned. What is a cape going to look like after this? I don't think it's going to be the same. Yeah. Um, and I think that's there. We're hinting towards that a lot. Yep. So Tuttletail asks how she should punish them for making this decision, the, the, the kids, against her orders. Um, and Victoria says, you know, you can just cry, sh- showing them how much it's actually affected you. Yeah. And I love that Victoria, as she comes up with this idea, thinks about Ashley uh, when she says it. Right. Um, so she's like channeling like kind of a what would Swan Song do here? Her her resurrected friend who has ascended to Shard Heaven. Am I saying that Swan Song is Jesus? Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> Um, but, but this moment, <laughs> this moment is great. I'm not much of a crier. She said it really unnerved them probably for just that reason, but they're resistant to bullshit. So, you know, and then she follows it up with, I could really actually cry. Don't worry about that. And that's a moment of vulnerability from Lisa that we just don't see. Yeah. Like I'm not much of a crier is a very Lisa thing to say. Like, it's like, I'm not much of a crier. And, and Victoria jumps off of that and it's like, yeah, well that's why it would work. But, but they maybe would sniff out the bullshit because obviously you'd be bullshitting. And she's like, no, no, no. Like, I'm not much of a crier, but I could actually, I actually cry here. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's really great. Um, uh, and, and you believe it too, because we, we know how much she cares about chicken little specifically. Yeah. Um, who's yeah. the one she's looking at when she says that. So. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. And I mean, like it's such like tattletale has gone through so much in this book and I, like, I love that the the one through line is taking care of this kid and yeah. it, from the beginning to the end, it's taking care of this kid is it, it's making sure this kid is safe. This, this legacy of her best friend. Um, and she's changed a whole lot, but, but that is the one truth. And I think that maybe even loving this kid led to some of this change. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, so Tattletale says that she has been intentionally checked out. She doesn't know any of the current events. Um, she's just uh, just hanging out, uh, which I think ties into this idea that it's not just Victoria who is just done with this shit. Yeah, yeah, totally. It, uh, Lisa is right there with her. Um, and I love I'm jumping ahead, but the conversation where they're trying to figure out what the hell they do now yeah. is such a great conversation. I yeah. love that. Um but yeah, like these two people that were always on opposite sides of things and butted heads, but worked together throughout it all. Both are just like, yeah, we're done. We're done now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just have to read the ending of this chapter because, I mean, we, we do see more of this conversation later, but I just I found this so incredibly satisfying that I I would have been fine if this were just the end of it, mm-hmm. um, where uh, Vicky invites her uh, to go get some coffee. She says, we're not friends, Vicky. Sure, I told her, rolling my eyes. So as not friends, do you want to dream up punishments for the kids over co- over coffee? I'm ravenous. She looked down at the cup she was already holding, then pitched it into the, into the garbage. Rachel clutched this together, and it's so strong it makes my eyes hurt. Fine. Fine, I said with a note of easy humor and a lack of guard I hadn't let myself feel in a long, long time. Like I could have laughed as I said it. And like, yeah, I, like, like I said, that would have been a perfectly good ending for Victoria's character. Uh, yeah. I, I'm happy we get more in the next chapter, but like I was just, I just had like this 
smile at, as as this chapter ended. So yeah, I mean, wh- what I think it's perfect too, and it, I mean, this is the end of the book if we consider the book everything before the epilogue. Yeah. Um, and you're right that we see more of this conversation. We see more of Victoria, but I wonder if this is the end of us being in Victoria's head. If this is the last line we get from the Victoria point of view, the last line we get from Victoria's inner monologue with a note of easy humor and lack of guard. I hadn't let myself feel in a long, long time. Like I could have laughed as I said it. And then we exit Victoria's head and we don't get to ride in that head anymore. Um, that would feel like a very satisfying thing. And I don't know. I mean, we might have an epilogue chapter from her point of view again. We might not, but I think it feels like it feels like we're saying goodbye to that point of view. Uh Um, and, and while yes, we get to see her and, and see the next chapter is definitely still about what Victoria is coming to realize, but I don't think there's like a, I don't think there's a big realization on Victoria. It's more, Victoria helping Chevalier come to a realization. So it's less about her and more about him. Yes. And I think that that helps me feel like, okay, we're now we're saying goodbye to her. We're moving further away from her. And now we're seeing the things she's done ripple out to these other characters. Yeah. I think we're just getting clarity on the meaning of some of the actions and things that she said in this chapter, which we really could have, I think we already put it together, but um, yeah. 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 All right, so we move on into the epilogue, uh, the first epilogue, 20.E1. Um, Scott, we're in the epilogues. Yeah. It's crazy. It's really yeah. ending. It, it is. Life has been so crazy lately, like with this whole, you know, pandemic, uh-huh. that I don't know if it, like we've been on this arc for a, like a month and a half now, longer, I think. This is this is part seven, so that means seven weeks. Right. Um. So, like, I've known that this has been coming for a while. Right. <laughs> and I don't know if it had hit me until, like, I sat down to read an epilogue, um, which doesn't actually say epilogue on it. That's something we should note. Like, True. this could just be. No, it's just it's just interlude E. True. One <laughs> could, could be could be. <laughs> it's not. I, it, this is this. Everything about this feels like epilogue. Right. Um, but yeah, this is it. We're, we're done with the book proper. We're on to the epilogues now. Um, and it's been this crazy two and a half year long journey. And and now it's finally hitting me that this is, this is it. We're, we're coming to an end. Yeah. Um, like you said, um, it's difficult to kind of process this kind of thing at this particular moment in time, uh, because there's just so much else going on. Um, but yeah, it's, it's weird. It's a weird feeling. Yeah. And, we have to note that the structure of this epilogue seems a little different, at least from worm, right? Yeah. Worm ended. And then there was an epilogue arc that was multiple chapters and there are going to be more chapters in this epilogue. I think E one tends to indicate that. Um, but it is still attached to arc 20 last. This is not epilogue arc chapter one. This is arc 20 last chapter E one. Right. So, I mean, Ward's structure has generally been different from Worm in a lot of ways. And I'm just I'm not even talking about like narrative structure. I'm just like the structuring of the chapters and the arcs have been different. Um, I wonder, though, if there is we don't have a large sample size to work with quite yet. But if there is a reason why these epilogues have been attached to the the arc in this kind of way. Uh Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I think it's too soon to say, but that, I mean, that's definitely something I noticed. I was expecting it to be, you know, like, like you said, arc 21, something, um, mm-hmm. arc 21 epilogue name, but no, it's, yeah. it's, uh, 
it's it, it is different um but like you said i there have been enough deviations from the structure of worm that i'm not able to really just say like oh this is really unusual it's like yeah okay yeah. Well, it's, it's, sometimes it's different yeah and, it, and it's a choice and and i'm i'm really interested to see and, and that's one of the things i want us to pay attention to however many chapters there end up being in this epilogue if it's three or, or five or, or eight, ten i don't i don't know but if we'll see if there's like if there's a reason why maybe it just maybe the the content of these chapters just fits better inside this arc uh-huh. like in a way that i don't know i don't know yeah we'll have to see yeah so um we move on into chevalier's point of view so chevalier hangs upside down in the, the crashed car where he had his trigger event and he laments the fact that the shards didn't bother storing an accurate memory of his brother's face. Uh, he thinks of his brother as so terribly important to him and a mere prop to his power. <laughs> you know, you get so used to being in Victoria's head, a person that has become so one with her shard that they literally are in love with each other now yeah. that you forget how this power escape dynamic usually works. <laughs> yeah. People as props and tools, a means to an end and, and nothing more. And I think very early in this this epilogue you're like oh yeah that was the relationship that's yeah. how it works um For it sure. doesn't give it it doesn't give a shit about your brother this 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 thing that defined your life this reason why you went forward with your um with everything that, that got you originally into trouble and led you to um to the protectorate eventually and then to the wardens the thing that started you on your path they don't give a shit about that yeah, I mean, it's interesting for him specifically. You could really draw a line between the Snatchers, um, these these horrible, monstrous kidnappers who come and, and grab his brother, and the Shards, who are in a sense doing the same thing. They 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 grab kids and they use the kids for their own horrible ends. Yeah, and um, yeah, the Shards are fucking awful. It it's funny because the the idea that the Shards are fucking awful has been the norm in the fandom, but Victoria's sort of more positive relationship with her shard has caused us to have a, a bit of a more nuanced feeling about them. But yeah, as far as we know, that's like the only shard that's remotely nice. So <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, it is very easy to just kind of see this beautiful relationship between Victoria and Fragile One and just be like, shards, are they that bad? Right. Yes. 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 Right. Um, you're, yeah. you're forgetting about all of the other ones. <laughs> yeah. Literally every single other one. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I really like about this chapter and and a motif that I think we can connect across both of these dream chapters we've seen so far is this idea that the past just doesn't really have any answers for you, at least not satisfying ones. Victoria gets nothing out of Dean really except a realization that she shouldn't be looking for anything out of him because there's just nothing there. And here Chevalier is sitting in this experience reliving his trigger event and he basically says to himself there's nothing to learn here there's nothing to gain here there's there's nothing this is i i I can't get anything from this and it's almost as if to say that our past defines our problems defines who we are but it can't solve those problems for that we need the future a future we need time and i think the idea of time is a is a a, a motif that's repeated several times by victoria throughout this chapter um that that we need time to figure this stuff out we need a a future to allow ourselves to 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 have a road to walk down i think that's really awesome yeah i think i think that's spot on um you know his brother's face is not stored properly his parents faces are like 
flat because they're just taken from photographs. And it's just all these indications that he he wanted some kind of solace, some kind of maybe feeling of, of belonging and connection from this memory and, and, and from this dream and realized it's not going to give it to him. It's it, it he's not going to get any of that stuff from the past, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. So he tries to talk to his brother. Um, then as the memory of this trigger event plays itself out, I think one interesting thing about this scene, um, and tell me if you have a different interpretation is that Chevalier actually has misremembered his trigger event for his whole life, or he's had some kind of amnesia regarding it, uh, up till this point, because as he's going through the dream memory, he realizes that he was actually awake when the snatchers came. He actually fought them. Yeah, I, that that's interesting. That's not how I read it. Um, and now I just have no idea <laughs> who is, who is more right. I'd have to go back and read it. Um, my read was that this is almost like a metaphorical and a literal awakening of sorts that he was unconscious when it happened, but now this newly wise and changed Chevalier isn't asleep anymore. He's awake, both literally and metaphorically. Like he knows what's up. He knows what's up now. Um, mm. I like yours too, because that, I think that is one, an interesting thing to how the past is distorted through our memories and how things are changed and warped to be what we wanted them to be, not what they actually are. So I like that interpretation too, but that's not, that's not the one I had when I read it. Yeah. I think the main line that makes me pretty sure of this is, is when, uh, when the, the snatchers are like reaching for him and he thinks he, he hadn't remembered this part and just the phrasing of he hadn't remembered this part tells me, well, it, it, it happened. He just forgot about it or he mm-hmm. blocked it out or, or, or what have you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, or maybe I mean, he I, had brain damage. I don't know. Yeah. I still think the, the metaphorical awakening could work under that sure. interpretation still. Um, yeah. Well, he's awakening. I mean, you could say he's awakening to the reality of what actually happened that he's suppressed all these years Yeah, as, as well as everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I do love the conversation he attempts to have with his brother though. Like this is, this is kind of, I think the, the statement of the chapter right here um, and the statement of the wardens, they asked me if I'd put my life on the line and trust the people we've been protecting to wake us up. I realized all at once that I'd made a mistake. Ever since the world ended, I've been telling myself we need to slay these demons, face down these monsters, stave off this war for another few months. If everything turned out all right in the end, then they'd forgive us for being elsewhere for the first few years. And I love I love this so much, Matt. Like, Chevalier has basically been a non-entity in this book, right? Like, he's been around and we've seen him in fights, like in the background or in meetings or giving speeches, but we spent almost zero time with him as a character, Mm -hmm. as a person. And yet in this moment, just look how easily his character arc that's been just running in the background kind of slots into the themes of this book. Everything that he's talking about here, like fits into some of the things that we've been talking about the whole book, like Chevy, like woke up after gold morning and was like, all right, we got to go. Like this is our new start. And we have to start the new start good. So we got to fix all our problems. Got to go out there and fix them. Slay the demons. Fix the problems. Go, 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 go. And then once we do that, everything will be okay forever. And everyone will love us again. And it will be fine. And of course, th- if any, if this book has taught us anything, it's that that idea is just 
wrong. It's just wrong. It never works that way. That's just not the way it works. That's not the way it worked literally in the story. That's not the way it works when you're trying to get over terrible shit that's happened to you when you're trying to recover, when you're trying to move forward. That's never the way it works. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, this is the moment that he finally realizes that. Yeah. It really makes the, the whole uh, conceit of, of the, um, the death song, you know, the, 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 the sleep, the dreaming, it, it makes it land so hard here it, mm-hmm. to have it connect for this character. Like it already made sense for Victoria and Victoria's arc and Victoria's struggles and, and what was going on with her character, but to have it connect in a, in a related, but slightly distinct way for Chevalier, you you, you really get to kind of see how this idea reflects through and refracts through these different characters. I think it's yeah, awesome. Yeah. This idea that they 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 looked at this new world, this world of second chances, this world of new opportunities, and they kind of just fell right back into old habits and were like, okay, now we have to prove that we have we should exist to these people. And the only way we can do that is is by solving all their problems for them without without their input. And we'll ask forgiveness later. Yeah, we'll just go and do it. And that's what they did. And that's I mean, we've talked about how the wardens, this big, powerful, you know, proto protectorate organization has just kind of been a non-existent entity in the story. And it's because that's what they were doing because Chevalier, one of the people in charge of this organization was leading people towards that choice to just go out there and solve all the problems and not interact with any of the people, not be seen on the streets, not do anything, just go solve the problems Mm -hmm. alone without any help. Right. I mean, I think, I think, People, we've we've noted this as we went along. This idea that the the anti-parahuman sentiment was able to to fester to the degree that it did, because there is this pervasive sense throughout the story that just like the wardens are not here, like the top yeah. the top people, like they're oh they're just off somewhere. And you know it, it, it was you know plot wise it worked out because Victoria, who is yeah I. I I'm not insulting her and calling her like more of a mid-tier cape uh, ended up being central to all of the events in the story because all of the high-end capes were off fighting like some kind of dragon yeah. or, or whatever somewhere else. Right. right. Why the fuck is Victoria Dallin on TV <laughs> speaking on behalf of capes? I love her. She's great. Uh-huh. Who Who is she? Right. Nobody knows who she yeah. is. Her like, and her team of she- misfits, right? Right. Why is it Chevalier standing on a stage talking to talking to the humans, telling them about what the plans from now on? Why, like they they totally abandoned that side of the equation um, to go do important things. No one's denying they're important. But as will be said later in this chapter, there is a balance. Yeah. Yep. Um, so uh, Chevalier's trigger vision like the actual trigger vision itself, not not just the event, really is, I think, remarkable. Um, and for me, it really served as a kind of final piece of explanation that I didn't know that I had been looking for. So we learn from his trigger vision that the orbit of the entity's planet intersects a kind of natural space-time anomaly, like a natural hole between dimensions, mm-hmm. um, possibly something very subtle. But natural selection picks out the, the worms on on the planet with any accidental ability to take advantage of this anomaly. Uh, and then of course, natural selection runs away with this capability as natural selection tends to do. And we end up with entities that can control this, this power, um, can leverage it for their own, for their own ends. And so we understand how the entities got their fundamental shard bullshit, interdimensional abilities. (laughs) Um, and 
that was really cool. And then, of course, we understand like, okay, well, Chevalier's power relates back to the very fundamental nature of, you know, pushing things between between parallel worlds, because that's that's where his power comes from. That, that, That may also be why he has this like shard vision power, actually, because his power is so incredibly old that it's like prehistoric for the shards. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely neat information, and I think you get more into that kind of nerdy inner workings of shard shit than I do, which is like totally cool. I'm not I'm not knocking that at all. I just don't know what to say about it. I'm just like, yeah, it definitely answered questions of like, how does a creature develop multi-dimensional abilities? Uh-huh. How would that happen? Well, here you go, yeah, solved. Yeah, solved uh, in a way that's just like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Yeah, that totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. It, it it is so funny that here at the end of this second book, like there's still mysteries to be solved. And, and I mean, about about who the entities are, what they are, why they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, we'll even leave this chapter with some of those mysteries still being out there. So. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so he then tries to ask a question um, <laughs> of the entities. And after re-experiencing his vigilante days as relentless, brutalizing gangsters, he eventually gets a garbled response from the ghost of Alexandria, which basically just goes communication, sending a message, answers. Yeah, which is not like helpful at all. And I I love that. Like he's like, oh, this came from Alexandria and she's actually just pulling quotes from things she said yeah it's she's not actually like talking to him. Uh She's just like pulling quotes and he notes that like everything every quote she's pulling from here is a moment she lied to me so i don't know if i want to believe this but Uh actually we learn later in the chapter that she's right there Uh um it's really interesting though because alexandria is like she says yes alexandria like yes she's here but as we already said she's talking through fragmented memories she's broken kind of and we see that she has the pretender like pink eyes on her here so like maybe some screwy shit happened when pretender like subsumed <laughs> her body and like was alexandria forever until he died um that <laughs> fucked up the storage and now they're like two people uh-huh. but also still e- independent and they have separate memory and let's it's just screwy and weird right yeah it is really interesting that that as much agency as swan song appears to have in this space Alexandria is is very much limited to being able to kind of play with the existing tape, um, not not just yeah. speak her mind here. Yeah, and I think that reflects, you know, we were talking about Ashley's death versus Tristan's death, and now we can say, well, what about Ashley's death versus Alexandria's death? Yeah. Um, like how the book treats them in their quote-unquote afterlife seems to indicate something about, you know, what kind of people they were. Alexandria. Yeah. Not great. Yeah, in the end, not great. Um, so Chevalier then kind of jumps around a bit. He, he jumps to the behemoth fight. Um, he d- then jumps past that to a later point in the fight against Sion. Um, it, it's very, it's very kind of like um, emotionally evocative and it just very kind of more dreamlike through this period of, of the chapter. Um, and and he begins to despair at the cyclic nature of it all, the, the constant struggle that never ends and never gets better. Yeah, I, this is this is wonderful. This uh, this horrible but accurate idea that like 
he's gotten so used to handling pain and anger and betrayal and despair and the compromise this he's gotten so used to handling these things individually and piecemeal that he believes he can do it but just the fact that it's a cycle and it never ends is just almost too much that yeah. it's just never stopping and this this wonderful quote that he could wake up find everything back at square one and be trapped in the loop Shock, struggling to find his footing, angry, bargaining, despairing, compromising, and finally finding fleeting peace. This is his greatest fear, right? Like this is the the greatest that they're going to wake up and and it's just going to go again. It's just going to be like after gold morning. It's just going to be, okay, we're going to get up and then we're going to go out there. We're going to start solving the problems and we might solve them temporarily, but it's just going to happen again and again and again and Oh, it's it's devastating. And, and what I love is that later in the chapter, that almost exactly happens like that. Th- he starts to go down that path again. We see it happening. And yeah. And then our protagonist says one word or two words. Yeah. And it changes everything. Yeah, it, it is. It is great. I and mean, we will talk about that moment when it happens. But just walking him almost, um, you know, almost not under his own volition, just like be, this is who he is. He is, he is the guy who always goes, you know, steps forward and, and faces the the demons and never gives up. And, uh, and so of, of course he's gonna, of course he's gonna get back into it as soon as he can. And, but luckily mm-hmm. he runs into Victoria. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Chevalier wakes up, uh, beside Hannah and he thinks sadly about how their relationship never worked out. Is uh, it not Hannah? H- Hannah, Hannah, Hannah. <laughs> It probably is Hannah. I don't know. I was. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was like, it's, have I been saying the name Hannah wrong my entire life? I don't know how to pronounce these fantasy names, Scott. <laughs> these made up names. Um, so, yeah, he makes his way to the cafeteria where uh, Victoria and Tattletail are having a pleasant coffee chat. Uh, and again, I want to emphasize here, Chevalier is not wearing a mask. In fact, he's basically wearing PJs. Yeah. And, and neither is Victoria or Tattletail, right? Correct. Lisa is there. As a civilian. Yeah. Yeah. The, I, I, the, the, the super villain. The super villain. <laughs> who, she's just right there with Chevalier in his PJs. Uh, tattletale. No mask. Uh, yeah. So like we've been talking about, there's this pervasive sense that Chevalier just expects some new crisis to pop off at any moment. Um, he's spent the last several years jumping from crisis to crisis. And it's really impossible for him to just accept that things might just be okay now. Yeah. And it's like, like like we talked about, this is his worst fear basically coming true. He's chained to that cycle. It's his worst fear, but something he, he his nature cannot let himself escape from. Um, and, and I, I like, like, first of all, the thing is that on a, on a certain level, he's right. Right. Like thematically the, the idea that this book and the end of this book is there's not a permanent solution to your problems. There's not an easy like go out and slay the demon solution. There's always going to be bad things out there. And even in, in this chapter, we see there's all this bad stuff out there still. There's stuff we have to deal with. There's crises. There's still people with powers. Like even if the fundamental dynamic of Capedom has shifted at the end of the story, there's still going to be some crazy, violent, horrible people out there that are going to use powers to hurt people on top of the machine army on uh-huh. top of ev- on top of this this extra dimensional army that is going like uh, of of shin and earth sea like that are out there and aren't happy with you guys there's always 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 
always going to be problems. Yeah. Like there's just there's always going to be problems. There's always going to be things to do. Um, that doesn't mean you can't make different choices, though. And but he's falling right back into his pattern here right yeah. away. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, just, you know, as as we're making it through here, it, it feels like a kind of great closing note that he sees Victoria's power as being perfectly overlapping with her form, just like in, in almost perfect alignment with her. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'd never thought about the fact that it's so thematically fitting that the shards are always like to the side or above or around the person when he sees the shadows. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that really does symbolize their, their puppeteering of the people in some ways, but no, yeah, this is a perfect, perfect image. Um, it, it lines up to what we saw with Victoria last chapter um and it makes you just happy for her yeah. and like i love like her, victoria's hands are on the coffee mug and fragile one's hands are on victoria's hands yes um it, it's uh that, it's wonderful that, that's i'm glad you pointed that out because i i for some reason didn't write that down even though that that's awesome because it, it, it's another instance of just like the the power sort of hugging her and, and holding her and caring for her yeah um, yeah because i think that's the thing is he's he, he may be literally seeing her force field but i, th- I think that it's more like this is the metaphor. This is the metaphorical representation of of Victoria's power is something that is in perfect alignment with her and and kind of taking care of her. Yes. Yes. So the two women are talking about what they would do without powers. Um, well, <laughs> Victoria is trying to talk about that. Tattletail is just being a pain in the ass. This is the most lovely conversation ever. Yes. <laughs> Not only does it confirm the idea that we talked about last chapter that Tattletail seems to be done, but it's so perfectly what their not friendship is, their uh-huh. non-friendship. There's like this this conversation like it's just so like we talked about at the beginning that this is an epilogue now and the metaphors are done, the themes are done, the plot is done. This is just resolution. It's just satisfaction. And that's what this chapter is. That's what this chapter really is uh-huh. for me. Yeah, I agree. Um, and and then yeah. there's this one part, Matt, this one part that I needed to talk to you about forever. Okay, let's do when it. Tattletale tries to needle Victoria in a very Tattletale-like fashion. You couldn't even get into university, Tattletale said, and there's no university left. There's time. We'll adapt, Victoria said. Her tone was so calm. It was jarring him from his thoughts. He wanted to say something, interrupt, give her an order. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. He's like... Stop it. Stop yeah. being calm. <laughs> she just fucking needled you. And 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 we the reader know that this was a very hot button issue for yeah. Victoria. Like this is her failure to get into university is what like led her to the patrol block, which is what led her to to Jessica, which is what led her to breakthrough. Um this it kind of set her on her path that she didn't get to do this one thing and she was very self-conscious about it and, and mad about it and hurt that she didn't get in. And this is Lisa trying to, you know, in her way, poke at that kind of stuff. And, um, she just doesn't care yeah. anymore. She doesn't care. And, and, yeah. and she's just, she's just kind of bantering and lighthearted about everything. Like she, yeah. she, she throws, she, she kind of throws the, uh, tattletales needling back at her when she, when she says, you know, she explicitly points out this thing that we've noticed a bunch of times where, where she's like, you know, I've, I've noticed that you have this, these, this, uh, these gradation of things that you refer to me as, um, <laughs> um, and, and it makes it, you know, it makes it explicit between them, which is, which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think Lisa's response when she's being especially, 
needling back to her is if you don't stop, you'll be glory hole forever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even that doesn't seem to bother her that much yeah. anymore. Right. Well, I, like, I think I, I just think that Victoria has kind of come to accept that this is who Tattletale is. And right. she, she's the kind I mean, we, we all have that friend who who crosses the line, you know, and you, you kind of have to make a choice at some point. All, all right. Is it worth it to me to put up with this person's shit? Because they're just not going <laughs> to stop being this way. Right. And, uh, you know, I think I, I think. uh I've definitely made the choice in a few cases that, yeah, it, it is like they're going to cross the line. They're going to poke me. They're going to maybe even poke me in places where it's not nice to do that. But um, on the whole, it's worth it. It's it, it, I'm not going to write this person off because they annoy me sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's their yeah. relationship. Yeah, definitely. And we didn't talk about this, but when Chevalier walked in the room, one of the ways in which he recognized Lisa immediately was like, oh, this is the person that Antares hangs out with all the time. Uh-huh. Um, and it's just so funny to see that from the outside perspective, right? As this, like, at the beginning of the story, Lisa was like on on Victoria's like top three list of people she fucking hates. Yeah. Um, and now here at the end of it, like, they're known as the two people that hang out yeah. <laughs> and are recognized because of their proximity to each other. I, I love this. I love, I love friendships, Scott. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, yeah. Uh, so I think Chevalier noticing that his inbox is almost empty is like the best example of show. Don't tell in history, <laughs> in history, in history, yeah. because, because I mean, we, we've been, we've been hitting this drum of, of, um, you don't you don't have to move on you don't have to get right back into the swing of of the constant grinding mm-hmm. uh, no win you know zero sum fighting and he checks his, his 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 inbox his inbox is empty there's not there's nothing immediately pressing but he still feels like still feels like he needs to tell victoria to go do something you know he's like no this can't be right this can't be right um, yeah. i dish i love i love the the just the single note of the inbox being empty yeah it's great it's 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 wonderful, and I wish I wish my inbox would be empty. Yeah, I I've, I I gave up years ago. For the first time in my life, I'm envying a cape. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that just shows you how ridiculously incapable of giving up on something Chevalier is, because yeah, yeah, only only some kind of superhuman would actually have an empty inbox. In, um, indeed, indeed. So so Victoria mentions that she won't go back with breakthrough, um, which I guess makes sense given you know the other comments she's made to her power and in, in, in general yeah and it's exactly like i figured right it's not that like breakthrough breaking up means that this these relationships are gone these people are her family now and she even says here she'll do anything for them she'll yeah. do to make sure that they're okay to make sure that they're safe she would do anything uh, but they're not a team of capes anymore that part of their lives is over now they're just friends and family and uh, that's good. I think yeah. I like it. Yeah, I, I like think it. so. Yeah. So uh, this is where I want to talk to you about time <laughs> because one of the refrains Victoria has again and again, I think it's at least four times in this chapter is time. There's time. We'll adapt. We have a road forward now. I'll have a bit more time to do that again and again. What's on Victoria's mind is time now this is what gives her happiness and hope and calmness problems aren't solved demons aren't slain demons can never really be slain but there's time and with time comes hope 
hope for change, hope for growth, hope to figure stuff out and move forward. And that's what she constantly says again and again throughout this chapter. And we don't have to be in her head anymore to recognize this. It's just, it's really wonderful. Yeah. Well, she's finally seeing the future as a place for, for possibility and, and for, yeah, for yeah. like you said, hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, Narwhal shows up wearing a unicorn t-shirt, which is great. <laughs> Uh, the pair of them talk about the situation, how things aren't perfectly rosy outside, but but they are kind of in a holding pattern, though. Yeah. And it just like it just again and again, we're hitting this beat of like there are bad things still. And I think that's the, the book really wants to stress this. Right. There are still bad things out there. Um, there's still problems. This is not an ending uh, like all problems solved. Hooray. Yeah. Um, but just because there are still problems out there doesn't mean you have to face them in the exact same way. Yep. Um, and then the entire fucking warden's leadership arrives in the break room. Um, everybody uncostumed and unmasked. We've got Hannah and Keith, uh, not not Miss Militia and Legend. Keith, that's his name. Yeah, that's his name. I don't think we knew that, right? I, I don't think we knew that. I also don't think we ever get. Do we get Chevalier's name? I don't think we do. Um, we have to. We have to. I don't think he ever. I don't think anybody ever calls him by his name in this chapter, and he thinks of himself as. Wait, I don't think he thinks of himself at all yeah i don't know if we I don't know think we name. No, we don't get one in this chapter i just I, I'm, I'm not remembering it from any other chapter so that's crazy yeah good catch yeah yeah um mystery name i'm gonna call him uh jeff okay <laughs> sure fine whatever um <laughs> why is the name i always go to jeff no hold on let me, let me fix we, we do already have a jeff so yeah, we do have a jeff um let's name him steve Okay, Steve. Yeah, that that, that fits Chevalier perfectly, Scott. <laughs> so yeah, anyway. I mean, so here's the thing. Like, I think a lot of what the story is doing here is just kind of trying to sh- show us that maybe hints at capedom is just going to look totally different going forward, right? Like, is it going to involve costumes? Is it going to involve secret identities and and special cape names? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I wonder, like. There's been this long-standing concept between Jessica's idea of separating cape and human and Victoria's idea of, nope, that's impossible, can't do it. And I wonder if in the end we might see, like, kind of a fusing of those two concepts in interesting ways with how how capes orient themselves going forward. I don't yeah, know. I mean, it would be interesting because, like, the the cops and robbers, you know, masks and all, all of this stuff. This was a this was the status quo that everything fell into, but it isn't mm-hmm. necessarily the only way that it could be. I mean, even stuff on Goddess's world, I think, was pretty different, um, in a bad way, of course. But but I, yeah. I, I think there's definitely many other ways that that the whole cape thing could look. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or I should say the whole parahuman thing should look because cape is a word that is bound up with this idea of of like the superhero costume and that, that whole aesthetic. So, yeah, you're right. How many of these guys actually wear capes? I don't know if like anybody in this room does actually. <laughs> um, it would be funny if Tattletail wore a cape though. That would be. Um, so we, we learned that Chris attacked some folks and then backed off. Um, there's some concern that he knew all the details of how the de- the death sleep technology worked. And like he may have done something or he may be doing something. And there's just kind of a question mark there. Yeah. And I don't know. Part of me wants to be worried about this. And 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 part of me is just like, 
totally in line with Victoria here. It was like, he thinks he's very good at hiding. He's paranoid, but he overestimates his ability. I hope he's found and realizes what he means when he is, what yeah. it means when he is. I, I, I think Matt, if I'm going to make a prediction here, we, we're not in the prediction business anymore, but I think we're probably going to, if not get a Chris epilogue chapter, but a chapter in which the point of view character encounters Chris in some way. I think it's just too delicious of a story element to avoid um, because yeah, like seeing Chris realize that he was wrong, right? Yeah. Seeing Chris realize that he bet on the wrong horse, that, that he should have had more faith in people. Um, yeah. And, and hoping that maybe that could maybe be the thing that shocks him um, into change, but also kind of recognizing that, Probably not. Yeah, probably, <laughs> probably not. I mean, not. It, it reminds me of the Shadow Stalker epilogue, actually. Exactly. Yeah. Where, yeah. well, I te- was that it? Yeah, I guess that was a Shadow Stalker it, epilogue. It was Imp's epilogue, I, th- I believe. I think um, you're, it must have been Imp's. Yeah. But the point being that Shadow Stalker's role in that epilogue is to be the person who never learns. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So uh, when Chevalier says, hey, we need to get going, Victoria tells him, I'm out. <laughs> And Chevalier is actually surprisingly pretty receptive to this sentiment. Yeah. Um, that they both share this understanding that they need to, quote unquote, need to make changes, break the cycles. Um, and, and he says, look, I want some time to think, some time to talk to people, communicate with the citizens of, of Gimmel, and really kind of make sure we're all doing things in a conscious and intentional way before yeah. we just move on and keep doing what we were doing before. God, I love I love everything about this so much because there's this there's this escalation there's a beautiful escalation here where it seems like chevalier's worst nightmare is coming true right like all all the wardens are there and chevalier's like all right let's do it let's do it we got to go out there we got to start solving the problems let's go and and i love the text here he was so proud of them like he had been before they realized the fight they were in the need to push forward no matter what there was a deep, heavy sadness that came with it that this fight went on. So like this is literally exactly what he worried about while dreaming. And and you can see why it's so hard for him because the person he is, he sees these people that recognize we got to keep fighting. We got to push forward. We got to keep doing this. And and he sees pride in that. And, and of course he sees pride in that. That's a heroic thing to do, to, to keep fighting, to keep pushing forward. Um, but there as as he'll say a little bit later there's a balance there's a balance to that and then Vic, and you're absolutely right victoria comes in for the first time in the book possibly the first time in her entire life chooses to step back and take care of herself yeah <laughs> and it, it's wonderful like it's this wonderful earned joyous moment for victoria but this is what knocks something loose in Chevalier. This is what knocks him off of that cycle. And so when Narwhal starts echoing the same kind of sentiment that he was just thinking about, the same kind of sentiment that we've heard from heroes throughout this whole story, if everyone made that decision, we'd be lost. This this idea of all or nothing, that yeah. we have to do this. Well, even and Victoria he, has, has echoed that. Right. She said something exactly like that in the past. Um, she's made that argument for why she needs to be out there, why she needs to be on the front lines, for why she's been upset with people when she asked them to help and they said no. Um, she's been in Narwhal's position. Exactly. And then who says there's a middle ground? It was Chevalier. And I love 
I love how this is written here because the the quote is without any indicator of who said it, right? Unfortunately, Narwhal said, if everyone made that decision, we'd be lost. And then there's a middle ground. And I think you first time you read that for a fraction of a second, you think that's Victoria because it would make sense, right? Like she's the one arguing against this. But it then says the voice that had stated that was Chevalier's. He fixed his eyes on the ground. And it's almost as if because we're in Chevalier's head technically, right? Yeah. It's almost as if he's surprised himself yeah. by saying it like well, that yeah. he doesn't that he takes a, he takes a beat to recognize that it was him that said this. Yeah, I, I think I think that this is very uncomfortable for him too. like yeah. that fixing your eyes on the ground is something that you do when you're um, nervous or, or yeah. uncertain or, or even ashamed. And, you know, this is a super hard charging, confident leader and he's saying something that he knows is going to be so uncharacteristic and, and probably not immediately popular with this circle of people that he's, that he's kind of bracing for it almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it is, it is popular, Matt. Like, yeah. <laughs> there was collectively an easing of tension. People relaxed and he realized that they had been holding on to their own lessons, their own fears and realizations from the past evening. They were loyal enough to follow him if he asked, but they hadn't wanted it. And it's like, this is like going to Abilene, right? Like yeah. this is, nobody wanted to do this. Nobody wanted to continue the cycle on, but they would, they would if, because they're heroes. And if one person says, okay, let's do this, they're going to do it. But sometimes you have to be the person to pull a Victoria and say, I'm out. Yeah. And, and maybe you should be out too. And, and like, I understand why this is so difficult for Chevalier, the guy that wants to, wants to, um, always be in the thick of things, always be helping people, always being heroic. I get it. But like taking a breath and making some breakfast and talking about stuff does not mean you're not going to be a hero anymore. Right. Like it doesn't mean you're not going to help and fight and try to make the world a better place. It just means that, like he said, there's a middle ground. There's a balance. Like you don't have to rush out and do it right away. You can take a beat. You can take care of yourself. You can make some toast. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's great. It's it's what everyone really needed to hear. And I mean, it's mm-hmm. great that this really is Chevalier's chapter. Um, but Victoria plays this crucial role where she just kind of conveys her her lesson, her mm-hmm. her moral of the story to him. And then and then he he's able to to be the leader and kind of transmit that to the other leaders, the, the, the other high high ranking people here. And you get the yeah. sense that something real has happened here. Something important has, yeah. has changed. Um, and that the cycles are going to be broken, hopefully. Yeah. We talk about how, how brave you have to be to like walk on a battlefield against a, a, a creature that is 20 million times more powerful than you are. Yeah. Like he did against behemoth. Right. We talk about the bravery of that moment and how badass and wonderful it is. It's also brave to look at a bunch of heroic people and say, I can't do this. Yeah. And I I don't want to do this anymore. And I understand that it's important and I understand somebody needs to do it, but I can't, I can't do that. And that that's brave too. Yeah. And we don't, we don't acknowledge that bravery enough. Yeah. I Um, mean, it it was brave for Victoria to say I'm out and it was brave for him to back her up. Yep. Um, Yep. I think that's great. Um, you know, but we're we're almost done here. I I feel like we did short shrift to the section where he was uh, relentless, and I just wanted to say that Chevalier's power is so fun and just 
it's so fun to, to read about and to think about. And I love it. I love uh, it. I love like I swung at you with a baseball bat, but uh-huh. inside the baseball bat was a metal pole <laughs> yeah. 30 feet long. <laughs> yeah. Pulverized his, his body. And yeah. Yeah. And like he, destroyed he, a wall. <laughs> His shoes are so heavy that when he walks, they like break the ground. Yeah. They just look like tennis. And he's wearing cardboard armor. Yeah. God, his power is so cool. Yeah. Cardboard armor that is actually two inches of steel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bullet bounces off of it. It's so, so fun. Yeah. yeah. It's so great. Imagine like how confusing it would be <laughs> to see that. Yeah. To like shoot someone wearing cardboard uh-huh. and it bouncing off. Yeah. Like, God, he's so cool. It, I love Chevalier. Me too. Yeah. Good old Steve. Yeah. I <laughs> love Steve. So as the chapter wraps up, Tattletale does uh, answer one question for them using her power. She says, the Titans weren't digging, they were etching. They were leaving behind a message for the rest of their kind. So you want to speculate on what the heck this could mean? Well, um, I mean, I, I just literally read what Alexandria said, um, which I'm scrolling up to try to find. But basically, it, it was an answer. It was communication. Uh, it was sending a message, it, it, and, and I think that message probably has something to do with. Um, I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go for it and say it has something to do with the themes of the story. That that it's got to be something like maybe we should just accept that we're not gonna be able to solve this the, mm-hmm. this entropy <laughs> thing. Like yeah. like maybe we can just do something else other than be obsessively trying to stave off the heat death of the universe, which like, like what a, what a waste of time. (laughs) Uh. Yeah. I mean, I I think you're right. I think the way it's framed here and in the uh, early in the chapter, something was learned by Fortuna by the shards and they wanted to communicate that important message and answer Uh, like probably not the answer you want because that's not how those answers work, but the answer you've got something, something has They've discovered something um, through the interaction with the humans, through what they've been through. They've discovered something, something important enough that they want to make sure the other entities, no matter how how long into the future from now, see it. Um, And I like that is encouraging too. like that, like that's hope for their future as well. Yeah. Hopefully they'll stop being little shits. Uh huh. Stop being shits, entities. Just yeah. stop it. Yeah. Maybe I mean, that's what it is. Stop it. That's what the message just, is. Just stop it. Yeah. Just I mean, stop it. It, it, is, it is a fun, you know, like like best case scenario if that's true, because it's like not only did the, did humanity defeat the shards and, and save the species, but they basically um, averted the, 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 they defeated the shards wholesale. They, they defeated the whole program of milking the entire universe or multiverse for, for suffering to create, uh, learnings from conflict. Yeah. Um, yeah. that's, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good ending. If that's true. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look like entities is, is basically monsters Inc. Exactly. They're, they're stealing those screams yep. from the children. And then one day one of them came along and said, Hey, what about laughter? Yeah. We tried laughter. Yeah. There's more energy there. Yeah. It turns out um, that laughter reverses entropy actually. Yeah. Don't know if you that, knew that. Cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So that's, that's it. Yeah. That's, kind that's of. epilogue, epilogue number one. Um, how many more epilogues do you, if you had to guess, this how many be would six, you say? six more, six more. So seven epilogues total. Seven epilogues. That's a bold, bold guess. That's I my love guess. It. Yep. Lucky number seven. All right. 
Um, all right. This, the discussion question from last week was, what is your favorite example of a story that didn't end up being about what you thought it would be about? First answer is from Sarah Penguin. Uh, they say near, not near. Uh, they say, when I first played near, it seemed like a generic fantasy slash action RPG as you kill monsters on your quest to rescue your daughter from the evil Shadow Lord. And then the rest of the post is spoiled. So I guess it's not about that. <laughs> cool. That cool. sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a problem with spoilers on these quest- questions, but I do enjoy them because I learn a lot about other media that I haven't played yet. So yeah, or, or read yet or watched yet, whatever. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, it's fun. It's fun to read them. I, I just think as a policy, we try not to just spoil like every everything ever, every show and, and book and game um, in, in in our show. So, yeah, yeah we're going to skip yeah, that stuff. Sure. Yeah. Uh, now we have Roger Dodge Lodgers. I practiced that before we started and I didn't I, I got it right then. And I <laughs> Roger Dodge Lodgers. There you go. Roger Dodge. Roger Dodge Lodgers. Anyway, they <laughs> says I love the movie. From Dusk Till Dawn. It starts out as sort of a buddy movie, but changes genres hard halfway through the film. Yes, it does. Um, have you ever seen that movie, Matt? No. I the think George Clooney, Quentin Tarantino. Um, even it's a vampire movie, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be a vampire movie. No, I've never seen it. I didn't know Quentin Tarantino was involved in that. I didn't know that. Interesting. He was an actor. In oh, okay. It. He did not write it. Or Very interesting. Direct it. Yeah. Once upon a time, Quentin Tarantino really wanted to be an actor. And that's why he puts himself in his movies, because he still wants to be an actor. Of course. Of course he does. Uh, But Roger also says, my favorite story that wasn't about what I thought it was about, however, is the His Dark Materials series by Philip Pullman. If you read only the first chapter of the first book and then someone tells you what the series overall is about, which relates to the third book's resolution, that person wouldn't be wrong to think it sounds like the author sent the story totally off the rails. But reading the story... Across all three books, it makes sense where the story goes and how it progresses. Yeah, uh, I've read the first one of those, and uh, it's definitely a really strange book. I've read all three of them, and it goes it goes places. It 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 goes to those places. Uh-huh. Cool. Um, moving on, to Gates Da says Madoka Magica, uh, which we did a doof cast on. If people are curious. Um, starts out as a more conventional magical girl story and then has multiple dark (laughs) involuntary shudder from Scott Um, (laughs) then has multiple dark twists that deconstruct the genre in the end the genre's characteristic values are still present and they're more powerful and authentic because the story challenged them the author's goal was to write a heartwarming story of friendship between girls he just decided a heart-wrenching tragedy of death and madness was the best way to do it Um, I, I like Madoka Magica, whatever the version was we saw. Um, I agree with this. It was a very interesting deconstruction. They also say Knives Out had some brilliant twists um, that likewise, likewise rejects genre conventions to better embody the genre's values. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like that phrasing. Yes, I do too. Um, I won't repeat my opinions on uh, Madoka Magica, but I'd... let's move on. <laughs> yes. Uh, Months for College says, I get to plug the game Disco Elysium here. 
there was actually two layers to finding out that there was more than meets the eye with this one. First is the actual base gameplay. I bought it expecting essentially a Baldur's Gate style isometric RPG in a more modern setting with combat, varied locations and a more eventful plot. In reality, it's basically a point and click adventure that works off of RPG elements, but does not have any have combat or classes or any of that. And it's a more contained detective story that unfolds within one general area. The second way more important layer of this of this is how the game initially presents itself and how it develops over time. The game starts you out as an aging rock star looking guy waking up in a trashed hotel room and you spend the first hours of the game having fun playing a nutcase with no memory and voices in your head, which are based on your skills, who can say crazy shit while stumbling around doing an investigation with your long suffering partner. It's fun and funny and the kind of in a kind of pathetic and endearing way and is probably the source of 90% of the memes about the game. Then as you make your way through the investigation, things start to shift. You learn more about the area you're investigating and how much things suck for the people there. You learn more about the political situation surrounding the murder. And you learn more about your character, who up until that point you've been playing as any other blank slate. Um, I've heard very good things about this game, Matt. But this is like the first time I've read something about it that made me go like, yeah, I want to try that. That sounds good. Yeah, I've, I've had people specifically come to me and tell me that like I specifically would enjoy this game. So uh, I'll, I'll definitely get around to it. Um, I think my resistance to it is I've always had a problem with the isometric Baldur's Gate style RPGs where I just could never get into them. Um, but now I've been told that it's really not that. <laughs> so yeah. now I want to try it for sure. Yeah, I I had no idea what the actual interface looked like, so. Um, whatever. Yeah. Cool. Uh, okay. Uh, Zoltron one, two, three says their answer. Uh, they say they're kind of cheating. They say that, uh, dungeons and dragons, uh, was what totally, uh, upended their expectations. They say their pre- preconceived notions of D and D were totally scrapped when they first played with a group of friends. They first thought the story and experience would be traditional fantasy setting and intrigue with dragons, orcs, elves, or whatever. They were thoroughly surprised when they enjoyed the experience immensely with some close friends. Um, the story was incredibly fun to act out. The characters, both NPC and PC, were enjoyable. Um, and this, the experience was like nothing they had ever expected. Um, yeah, I definitely also had like a kind of prejudice and just total ignorance about D&D prior to the first time I played it, which was with you, Scott, uh, when hey. we were in college. And since then, I have clearly come to like uh, the format because we did Weaver Dice Vegas yeah. and and uh, we've done I think you and I have been involved in a couple of D&D campaigns over the years so yeah yeah it's really fun it's really fun and I agree with that that the perception does not match up to what it is at all um, especially since the first time I played it I played it with some people in high school that were like really like like metagamey in uh-huh. a way that I think just destroys the experience because I don't actually think combat in D and D is very fun. No. So if you don't get into the role playing aspect of it, like, right. I just don't think it's that great. And for whatever reason, the first people I play with, were like super into the combat part. And I was just like, this is boring. Yeah. And then I played it in college with you and Michael and, uh, other Michael, um, and you know, another Michael and David, right. Yeah. Or RA. Yeah. 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 Um, it was, it was great. Michael's a really good DM. He is. He is. Cool. Um, All right. So Hobo Demon says Kill la Kill starts out as a fairly standard anime. The standard genre 
of transfer student upsetting the social order of their new school, the standard plot hook of their quest to avenge the death of their father, the standard metaphors for signaling social status through quality of clothing and the established hierarchy translating directly to fighting ability and how that plays into the unconventional stranger bringing anarchy. Um, And then the next part was spoiler. So kill a kill is not that. Yep. I I haven't seen it. So yeah, me neither. So cool. Uh, uh, Beard of Valor uh, talks about Beastars. Uh, Beastars is a manga with a Netflix anime adaptation. Um, This is long. and I know nothing about Beastars, but I'll I'll do my best. I know nothing about Beastars either, except that someone said it was really, really good. And then I saw it was anime and went, ugh. But maybe one day I'll watch it. Yeah, um, they they say it's they basically they say it starts out with like a murder mystery, but it but and then they say the 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 setup antagonist of the first episode ends up being the main protagonist, um, and basically they just say there's a lot of there's it seems like there's a lot of this stuff where like you're in, you're intentionally being led to believe things that are that are like the opposite of of what the story ends up actually being. So um, that sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, it's. I need to, I don't know. I don't want to commit to anything, Matt. Uh I don't want to commit publicly to anything because, you know, anime, but I have heard from people that this is very good and very different in in cool ways. Uh Well, you just let me know, Scott. All right. I'll get, I'll get right on it. Um, up next we have Wanson who basically talks about the three body problem series. Um, they're, TLDR is uh, the entire third book takes the mere idea of cooperation and trust between different spacefaring species, then rips it apart, stuffs it in its mouth, shits out the remains, dries and pulverizes the excrement, then shoots the dust into the nearest black hole. Wow. Yeah. Um, Um, This is a series that you and I read the first of for a book club and I didn't love it. um, But you went on and read the next two, right? No, I read the next, I I read the second book. Okay. Um, So you haven't read the third yet. And I I did enjoy it. I don't really have a reason why I didn't read the third one yet. I I, I intend to. Um, So I haven't read the third book, which is the one he's talking about here. Actually, uh, Watson does point out that pretty much every book is, is kind of a wild ride where it's never really about what you thought it was going to be about. Just because like the first book is basically this like, murder mystery type thing that then turns into something involving aliens that you just, it's just completely out of left field. <laughs> yeah, he, he, wow. he, I mean, I mean, I mean, I even regret saying that, right. Cause like you, you've read the first book, you, you get that like it plays the aliens thing so close to the chest that, that by the time it gets there, you're like, what aliens? Yeah. Um, yeah, except it's on the back, except on the back cover, which I think we talked about true. in the book club where we were like, why did the summary of this book spoil the, the conceit? Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Um, I, I, <laughs> which which we have just also done. So we, we sorry, have, everyone. But yeah, I know. Bad, bad us. But yeah, th- those books are quite a wild ride. They, the, the second one does the same thing where it's just constantly twisting and turning and you have no idea where it's going. So yeah, yeah I, I, I liked talking about that book way more than I liked reading it. And I think I just need to get over myself and, and give the next two a try because I'm sure they'll be fascinating to think about i think it's just the, yeah. the actual reading was was rough for me i think that the character in the first one was a bit of a cipher and the character in the second one is is more interesting to me at least so okay cool yeah uh extas Nouveau says the wandering in what started as a somewhat cutesy tale about a young woman's stranded in an rpg world transformed several million words later into a play about the influx of earthly knowledge into that world in several story strands of interesting takes of that idea and goblin society 
So, um, yeah, uh, I've heard of the wandering in. It's, it's, it's another one of those, those web serial things. Yeah. Those web serials. Yeah. Whatever those I, are. I don't know. I'm a little ambivalent about the whole format, but, um, it's like, it's like fruit loops, and lucky charms. <laughs> Uh, I remember asking my mom when I was like, like literally five, like, what what is a serial killer? Like, do they, do they kill? I don't understand the relationship between that and, and breakfast cereal. Yeah. My wife asked me the same question when she was 29. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. (laughs) There's, there's a place in London called the serial killer cafe. Uh Only it's spelled like breakfast cereal. Um, uh-huh. and, and that's when she realized that cereal and cereal were two different words. Indeed. Okay. Well, good story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. She doesn't listen to this. It's fine. Um, <laughs> up next we have sympathy for a chord who says maybe it's a cheat answer, but as someone who enjoys writer writing, I'm continually surprised by how my own story seemed to run away from me. I'm sure others can relate whether it's themes, characterization, major plot points, or even trivial details about how a chapter is supposed to unfold. No amount of planning is enough. If I'm writing and I happen upon a better path forward, one that doesn't completely derail my story, I'm probably going to take it. You can build a world, develop the characters, sets plots in motion. And with enough momentum, the story starts to write itself. It's incredibly rewarding. It's why I fell in love with writing in the first place, and it's why I'll never stop. Yeah, I don't think that's a cheat answer. I think that's a great answer. I love that. I feel the same. I mean, I think I may have told this story before, but like, I, I the longest thing I've ever written was, you know, basically a no- novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had this idea in mind the entire time I was writing it about where where it would end, and as I got to that point, I was just like, no, this is just wrong like these characters wouldn't make this choice this just feels entirely wrong and and they made a choice that that made the whole story like make sense and i hadn't i I didn't know that's the story i was telling it was amazing um Mm -hmm. that's so cool yeah i love it Uh, they're cool yes they are uh sanity planets says they're going with freaks they say the movie begins with a little girl who is kept trapped in a filthy rundown house by her paranoid father who insists that if she goes outside, people will try to kill her. The movie sets up the expectation that it will be a horror film or a psychological thriller with the father as the antagonist, and it leaves you asking what the fuck is going on over and over throughout the first 20 minutes or so. Then the answers to those mysteries are gradually revealed, along with several other cool twists, and the movie takes a sharp turn into a completely different genre. All the answers are completely satisfying, and all the bizarre stuff from the beginning eventually makes perfect sense. Worm fans will love this movie, so I hope you check it out. Yeah, I added that to my list on Netflix when it came out, and I have yet to actually get into it. Um, but I've heard good things, so cool. I want to I want to try it out eventually. That's cool. All right, so that's it, right? Yeah, that's it that, for, that's it for, for the questions. All right. So the discussion question for next week is, why epilogues? Why epilogues and and what i mean from this is what are epilogues and why do we have them (laughs) basically i i just want to explore the concept of what an epilogue is it is a thing on the end of the story what function do you think it serves what like how how do you think it is important to an ongoing story i mean we've seen in wildbo's writing every single one of his story has an epilogue some writers have them some writers don't why epilogues why? Why epilogues? Indeed. Why for out thou epilogues? <laughs> Perfect. Um, all right. <laughs> Matt asked me to explain what I meant, and that was my attempt. That's good. So I no. hope you all have gotten it's it. It's great. I get it. I, I, I have thoughts. 
Okay. Um, all right, Scott. March Madness. March's Madness Championship. Mm-hmm. What's up? I think it is very fitting, Matt, that here on the last chap, the last non-epilogue chapter of the book, we are also going to crown a champion of March's Madness. Um, it's it's exciting. It's yeah. fitting. It, it works. Um, so we had here the championship round was, of course, Victoria Dallin versus Lisa Wilborn. Um, I think a surprising. I did not expect Lisa to make it this far. I really didn't. Um, I thought she would do well. She always does well. I think there were some very key moments in the book that happened in the middle of this conversation, uh, this uh, tournament rather, that um, that boosted her up in certain ways. Um, but here she is. But did she win? I don't know. Let's find out. First, let's read some comments from Ponage Hobo, who says a vote for Vicky is a vote for all her personalities. You can't beat that for value. <laughs> it's fair. Chubster says, you know, being colorblind means I, I, I see strange things sometimes in color. And gold is sometimes a bloody, blood, bloody, broody yellow. And Tattletail is purple. Definitely not sweet. And Terry's all the way. <laughs> OK, Chubster. Uh, and we have Cage Glory that says, don't mind me, just upvoting Ashtoria again. Um, so a lot of lot of Vicky votes there, not a lot of Lisa votes. Matt, who is the champion of March's Madness 2020? I can't actually see that on my interface for some okay. reason. So you're going to have All to right. tell me. <laughs> I will tell you. The champion of March's Madness 2020 is by... Uh, I was trying to do math, but with 59.48% of the vote, Victoria Dallin has won the tournament. She wins 59.48% to 40.52%. Tattletale gets a little over 40% of the vote, but uh, Victoria wins with just a little under 60% resounding. Yeah. Fitting. Very fitting. I mean, I'm I'm glad, right? She deserves it. She deserves it. She does. She does. And that makes two tournaments in a row in which our protagonists have won the tournament, Um, which like part of me is like, yeah, that makes sense. But also part of me is surprised because like if you ask like fandoms who their favorite character from a story is, it usually isn't the protagonist. I feel I feel like the protagonist is usually one of the, the least popular characters. And it's 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 one of the characters in the protagonist's group. That's true. Um, I'm, I'm, n- nobody's favorite character is Jon Snow. Nobody's favorite character is Randall <laughs> Thor. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's, but I think I think maybe Wildbo's books are not unique because I'm sure there's other books yeah, in which that's I, true. But I, I, yeah, I think I like both. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I I, I see your point. Um, that's funny. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so congratulations, Victoria. Thank you, everyone who participated in the tournament. I had so much fun with it. I hope you guys had so much fun with it. Um, I don't know what the heck we're going to do next year. Who knows what will be happening? Maybe it'll be a Victoria versus Taylor head to head. Oh, head to head. I like it. Um, Did did we read the uh, bronze matchup? Not yet. I was just getting to that. Okay, Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. So the bronze matchup was between... Precipice and Swan Song are two two characters that I was pretty sure were going to make it to the finals are here duking it out for third place. So um, this was a very, very tight matchup, Matt. Uh-huh. Very tight. Um, let's see what some of the comments say before we read the winner. We have Misfist here who says, I'm normally all in for rain, but Ashley hit me in the recency bias and made me reread Eclipse again. So she gets my vote. 
All right. And then we have Sympathy for Accord who says, countdown from 100, Ashley, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And Ponich says, what in the great flavored hell is going on here? How come my boy Rain isn't fighting for first place? Well. Good question. I don't know. Yeah. All right. And the winner of third place is Precipice. He wow. has won with 52.66% of the vote to 47.34% of the vote. Rain beats Ashley. Oh, Very God. surprised. I am and shocked. Actually, this is it was kind of crazy because I, I I can see the results as they're coming in and I check it throughout the week. Early week, early voting, Ashley was ahead. It was uh-huh. like 60 to 40. And then as the week went on, the rain gang just just, <laughs> <laughs> just like just like slowly, slowly like went forward and and it ended up being I think it's like it's like 40 votes between them. Um, it's, it's very close, but rain overtook Ashley and, and never looked back and, wow. uh, and rain wins third place. So sorry, sorry, Ashley, fourth place for you. Uh, this is all sort of fitting poetically, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, so much fun, so much fun. So that is, that's March's madness. That's it. It's over. Awesome. Once again. Yeah. Can't um, wait for next March when everything goes mad again. Yeah. This is the uh, craziest March ever. It's so. true. This is very mad March. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, cool. Well, thanks for doing that, Scott. I mean, everybody, yeah. everybody always enjoys that. I always enjoy that. Uh, Scott is the one who does all of the work required for that. So everyone, please thank him specifically. Um, I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. It's a it's a good idea. All right. Uh, cool, so that's, The cool thing about it, actually, sorry, to, to I know you were moving on, mm-hmm. but the cool thing about it is it's really hard the first week. And then it gets exponentially easier. <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of tasks like that, are there? It's not uh, exponential. That's geometrically. Geometrically. Thank yeah. you. Um, yeah. Well, that's all we've got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You could reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter account at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at moreedin um, may L. That's the correct pronunciation. You were the first one to ever do it. Um, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so. So you never miss one of the last couple of episodes here. Yeah. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And you can find this and all the other podcasts we do over at our website, doofmedia.com. That's where you can find the Doofcast, which this week will be having Matt and I do an episode on Castlevania, the anime, the anime, the first season on Netflix, on Netflix. Yep. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Um, that's I'm, right, Scott. You can tell I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Um, <laughs> if you like, you know, for example, the tone that we just struck there, um, <laughs> and you want to support us in that sort of thing, then consider donating to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash doofmedia. Um, of course, that also supports all the other shows on the Doof Network, including this one. Uh, supporting us for the $5 um, per month level gives you the ability to vote in our... Jesus Christ, God, what the hell is happening? I, I didn't touch any of that. That's not me. That's <laughs> not me. Don't blame me for that. Uh, the, the script has been mangled in in a way that is 
just quite humorous, actually. Um, I'm, I'm, it, anyway, um, you'll get access to, to the Discord, uh, the fan art contest and, and costume contest voting and, and really any, any other voting that comes up. Sometimes we have other contests like uh, like the Doof, the Doof the Right Thing Challenge. Um, and of course, the Discord chat, which is just as lively as ever these days. Yeah, um, and that the $5 level that Matt said, but the script ruined was uh, for our Doof and Chill episodes, of which we are doing one this Friday night. Um, Matt and I are going to be racing Elliot and Ruben in uh, Portal 2 co-op, and it's going to be really fun. So yeah. uh, there's still time to get in on that action because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a good time. I, I can't wait for that. None of these jokers have played Portal at all before, and uh, and I've never played the co-op, so it's going to be four people that know nothing about any of these puzzles trying to do them as quickly as possible. I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, yeah, and of course, uh, head on over to Wildo's Patreon too, uh, patreon.com slash Wildo, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We are just playing in it. This week, special thanks to new patrons, uh, Bidoof's Lucalis, Sylphrenia, and Cameron C. Welcome. We hope you enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, I know for a fact that Sylphrenia will not be hearing this uh, welcome because Sylphrenia actually joined us from book club which is like the first time that's happened that we had a new patron just come from book club which is wonderful and exciting and i love it and a cool thing happened folks which is sophrenia was in our discord for like 10 minutes and then everyone made them read worm Uh and and now they're doing a live read of worm in the discord yeah (laughs) Um, so that's what happens when people outside of this community join uh join us is they're immediately told they must go read worm and they and they do it they go do it yeah. so that's really cool it's very exciting to see so thank thank you Sylphrenia. thank you everyone um we really really appreciate it we it, it means the world to us that we've been doing this thing it's two and a half years on this show matt just this show not the whole year show we did before this one it's been two and a half years oh my god um Holy shit. And, and <laughs> you guys have stuck with us throughout all of it uh, and we we appreciate it so much yeah yeah so, you know, see you in like five years, Silfrena, when you actually get to this episode. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be so, so exciting when you hear this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and of course, if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely OK. You can't help us out by sharing this, sharing our network, uh, sharing worm with people just like just like Silfrena got done to them um, in our discord. Uh and you can leave us rating and ratings and reviews over on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Um, those still help us even here at the end because let me tell you, there are still people finding this podcast and experiencing it for the first time. Um, we get emails all the time. We got an email the other day from someone who told us why I was wrong about containment foam. Uh-huh. I I didn't even remember what I said about containment foam, but you're probably right. I'm usually wrong about things. Yeah, you'll never it's still live it overpowered down. though. It's still overpowered. It it is. I mean that that's why it's not in this story is because Dragon couldn't afford to let it fall into the hands of the machine army, so she just stopped yeah. making it. Yeah, the only way to the only way to deal with its power is to just remove it from the entire world. Forever. Maybe she's been saving it up, and like that's the solution to the end. Here is like they just douse yeah, the entire countryside with it. I mean, that's clearly what Fortuna had the Titans etch into the crystal, right? Yeah, more foam. Yeah, yeah, just containment foam. Yeah. All right. Well, that's <laughs> all we've got for you this week. Next week, more epilogues. Maybe, maybe the end. I don't know. Yeah. Possibly.